Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Claire O'Connor. I'm your host today. Dave Gibney's on holidays, but we have three brilliant guests um, joining me today. We have Glenn Fitzpatrick, who's a Unite Union member and community activist. We have Mandate Trade Union official for North and West, Kieran Campbell. And we have Aoife Grace Moore, who's a political correspondent with The Examiner. So before we start today, I want to just um, acknowledge a story that was in the Sunday Times today by Justine McCarthy. So... Last week on the show, um, Dave had a conversation with Claire Daly about workers' rights. Now, since that show, um, Ronald McCord, uh, a Unite employee, has come forward with a story that was published in the Sunday Times today where she said, as an employee of Claire Daly, she felt undermined and disrespected. And we don't have Claire or Ronald on the show, so we're not going to pass comment on it or pass judgment on it, but we did feel it was important to acknowledge it. Rona has tweeted her own experience as well on her Twitter account, if anybody wants to have a look at that. But um, yeah, I felt it was important to acknowledge that this morning. Um, Kieran, I'm going to go to you for the front pages. What have you been looking at today? Sorry, Claire, um, apologies there, but I'm having difficulties with the internet connection here. But look, I'll, I'll do my level best. We got battered here in Northwest by Gales last night, so maybe that has something to do with it. Um, start off with, it's good to be back. Um, I believe the ratings are going through the roof and maybe that's why I'm back to maybe sort of temper them and maybe bring them down a wee bit. But look, I've had a good look at the Sunday Independent again and um, the front page is running with what seems to be the government's um, medium-term plan for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, which is to be formally announced by the government, I believe, on Tuesday of next week. And effectively, it's just bringing in some sort of um, levels of um, sort of danger, um, moving from level one at the least danger to level five, which effectively would bring us back to the middle of March and a, a national lockdown. And um, it's very clear that, you know, there's still going to be strong um, social restrictive measures in place throughout um, this period, which takes us up into April 2021. And um, whilst, you know, we're preparing for this and um, we're far off and maybe distant from level five, you know, the current stats regime um, and the way they're playing out would give us signals importance that we're fast moving to that level five um, criterion, and so which causes, you know, a lot of concern. Um, it's probably the same in all the other papers, but, you know, we're looking at Brexit as the big story, and I'm sure it's replete in all the other papers in terms of that story. I did have a look at the two front pages of the Sunday Worlds, and we had the Conor McGregor in the Sunday World South edition. And I'm not sure whether the listeners would know, but there's two types of Sunday Worlds. There's the North edition and the South edition. And the North runs with um, a Stephen Moore sort of, sort of um, a story expose in relation to the UDA and Belfast and all of their sort of... Uh... Okay, we've lost Kieran there, but um, Glenn, can I go to you on what you've seen on the front pages today that's grabbed your attention? I'm going to back to Kieran. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much. I suppose it, it does jump out at you, uh, Lucinda, there in terms of the... I suppose it jumped out for me anyway because tight restrictions until April. So my, my 30th birthday was in April there. I didn't get to have a party just because of it. So I'm kind of wondering which, which sign of April are they on there, you know? Um, but uh, it's interesting that Jacinda was the only paper that sort of led with this, uh, I suppose, these new tight controls. 
Um, you have to actually go to the business post in the middle of it to find, I suppose, an alternative view in relation to maybe what some people call virus elimination or, or zero COVID, you know. So there is a different strategy that has been laid out by, by medical experts that we don't seem to be discussing critically at all. So, um, I mean, I just thought that was interesting, um, whereas obviously the times have gone with the maybe the lower hanging fruit in terms of the FAI um, and that, you know, so... I mean, you'd wonder how serious this living with COVID plan is, first and foremost, because, you know, we, we seem to have, this is just the latest in, 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 a, in a string of plans that we've had. So, you know, when, when the public loses faith in, in these five levels, will we, will we move to a traffic light system or, or something else, you know? So I'm not entirely sure how serious the government is about this living with COVID-19 plan. It just seems to me like we're kind of moving towards herd immunity by another name, but that's just my, my read of things anyway. Um, and as you say, the Red Sea, as Kieran was saying, the Red Sea poll is 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 there in the front of the, the of, of the papers as well. And I suppose that's uh, you know bad reading for being a phone and that, but uh, there's a little bit more, I suppose, me on the bones and that in on the inside of some of the papers there. But um, I don't know where Fianna Fáil go from here, but it's, it's certainly one to get the popcorn out anyway. Yeah, yeah, I was really surprised. I was disappointed to see the Irish Times. Um, run with a story uh, from Dr. Martin Feeney basically calling the restrictions draconian and the kind of the approach that we're taking. And like, I agree that there's multiple, you know, conversations to be had around this. And I'd actually argue that the, the zero COVID isn't getting enough attention, whereas to see somebody criticise the, the restric restrictions as they are, kind of argue for herd immunity, which is going against public health advice on a weekend that has been called the, you know, the the most important weekend we've had yet with the numbers rising. Although, Glenn, I saw you had a, I think you wrote into the examiner this week, um, talking about that and talking about the messaging and how every week seems to be the most important week and that it's actually the, the messaging that you think is causing people to not comply so much. Yeah, I um, and thanks very much to the examiner for printing uh, my snide letter. It was very much just that, like, you know, we seem to be warned on a weekly basis that we've reached, reached a crucial tipping point or the next seven days are vital. And funnily enough, this morning now, the examiner has a quote from Rowan and Glenn saying that we're that Dublin's at a critical point. So I think it's kind of this motivating by fear and constantly telling people that, you know, something terrible is around the bend. Uh, and just as a narrative for people to get behind, I think it's just, they're just shedding support left, right and centre. So... You know, they need to come up with some sort of a different catch to, to get people to buy into the collective efforts that we need over the next few months, you know? Yeah, and actually speaking of the examiner, Aoife, what have you been looking at this morning? Yeah, so I have looked at the Sunday Business Post, or the Business Post now. Um, so they've obviously gone with their Red Sea poll on their front page. Fianna Fáil, um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, are down to 10%. According to the Sunday Business Post, during the bailout years in 2011, I think the lowest Fianna Fáil got to was 15%. So this is this is really like crucial. I know we're talking about crucial times. Crucial time for Fianna Fáil. Like, as we all know, there is ongoing rise within the party about the direction of the party. Jim Callaghan is on a one-man band tour around Ireland trying to speak to every Fianna Fáil member and councillor to find out what people want from the party. The issue seems to be they can't get the messaging right. And I know we always talk about, you know, the splits in the left and the splits in the greens. There tends to be now a bit of a split from what I'm hearing in Fianna Fáil of like where the direction of the party is going. We've seen a bit of that during the general election. You know, I spoke to a lot of TDs. We felt that they should have went into government with Sinn Féin. They should have given Sinn Féin a chance. But every, a lot of them are too afraid to say this to me, Hall Martin. And he didn't want to know anyway. So I think what we're seeing now is the fruits of that. I mean, they've come into government and it, 
really, really hard time for the country. You know, health and housing were the two main things during the election. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic and Micheál Martin at, at the helm can't seem to get the messaging right. And we've talked a lot already about messaging. And I think a lot of people think the blame lies solely at the feet of Fianna Fáil because Micheál Martin's the Taoiseach. And I really think, I was thinking this this morning as well, I don't think any other party will ever agree to a rotating Taoiseach again. I just, I just don't no. see any benefit whatsoever. I feel Micheál Martin has worked his entire life to get to this point. And I just don't ever believe that he thought that this is the way it was going to end up. And with Leo Varadkar, whatever he says, he says he's not briefing against the government and he's not trying to undermine him. So if he's not, if this is him doing it accidentally, I would hate to see what he was like on purpose. Yeah, I know. I mean, he, he has the G-Shock in less than two years. He knows Michal Martin isn't going to want to bring down his opportunity to be G-Shock. But um, yeah, so he's in that prime position of being able to undermine them from within. I do think it's fascinating. Um, the Green Party not changing. I think the Green Party have actually lost a chunk of their left support but have gained a bunch of Fianna Fáilers. So we're seeing that Fianna Fáil have that drop, but there, there's not the drop in the Greens that was probably expected. And I actually think that that's probably some Fianna Fáilers moving to, there's a more conservative Fianna Fáilers moving to the Greens. I've actually spoken to some Green members, a member of the Executive Council, and they've actually told me that they got a lot of Fianna Gael voters, people who had moved away from Fianna Gael, they move and towards the Greens, maybe, you know, they are worried about climate, but they do have a, an issue with, you know, social justice and like there's concerns among there. So they took a lot of um, Fine Gael voters during the election. And as you say, you well could be right. It could be Fianna followers moving away. But I would say my kind of feeling is that it's when Fianna followers are moving away, they're just completely disenchanted. I don't think they're going to any other party. Right. I actually thought what was really interesting, I mean, not surprising in the slightest, but when you break down the poll, um, ABC One voters, which would be the highest kind of socioeconomic class, 41% of them are voting for Fianna Gael. I mean, again, I don't mm -hmm. think that's a surprise to anybody, but what did what was a surprise, 33% of 18 to 34-year-olds are voting Fianna Gael. I mean, people paying crazy rents, you know, very unlikely to own their own home anytime in the future. And it's just, that just blows my mind that some of the people that are actually being impacted the most are, are still willing to vote for Fianna Gael. Now, maybe they're not in as, as bad a position as the rest of us. Uh, you know, maybe they have some money tucked away, but I don't know. I think sometimes you look into these polls and it, it's really hard to understand how people are, um, are are coming to their decisions on this stuff. Let's see if we can get Kieran back for a second. Um, while we're waiting to, while we're waiting on Karen, I think he's having some internet issues. I think he said the storm really hit them bad last week. Does anybody want to go to one of the big stories of the week? Kind of what was grabbing your attention, Glenn? Uh, just, I suppose, before we move off the, the Red Sea poll altogether, yeah. uh, some of the analysis on it is interesting. I know uh, that the Labour are on 3%, and I think that Red Sea sort of said that there would be disappointment in Labour that there was no surge there, you know. And I just think it's interesting that this kind of line of, you know, real opposition rather than opposition for opposition's sake that Alan Kelly has kind of tried to almost mimic the Keir Starmer model just obviously hasn't washed with anybody. Um, I mean, I just think that's, that's an interesting thing that they still, they, they don't seem to be making any inroads at all. Well, I think they have come across as probably one of the few parties of the left that don't seem to be buying into the, the idea of a potential left unity. They, do, they seem to be attacking the left as much as uh, the government, which... Yeah, I don't think that's going down as well with people as maybe was expected. I think it's getting Alan Kelly a lot of media attention, which might pay off for them down the line. But um, 
yeah, I don't think people who, who actually are a bit excited about some left unity are, are, are really liking how that's gone. I have interviewed Alan Kelly before and when we talked about this and his major thing about it is he genuinely doesn't believe that Sinn Féin are a left-wing party. He's, he's, he says it all the time. He doesn't believe that Sinn Féin are really left-wing um, when it comes to their policies. He, he reckons that, like, you know, it's a populist stance that they have and once they, got in, and once they get into government or if they get into government, it won't be, you know, left-wing policies. So that's why he basically is in opposition to the opposition. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's strange because I think as well with Alan Kelly, he's one of those people that... I think people vote for him because he's a good TD and he's a good operator in the media, but they mightn't necessarily consider themselves Labour voters, if you know what I mean. Like, people in top would vote for Alan Kelly because he's Alan Kelly, rather than consider themselves supporters of Labour. Yeah, I think we have that across as well. I mean, we have some TDs in, in the Dáil um, who probably wouldn't get elected if it wasn't for the localism in their area. You know, people who... I think are an absolute disgrace to politics. You know, I don't want to name them on here, but I do think that uh, the, the localism, and it's valid as well, because I mean, I think I've been doing a lot of, you know, staycations this year and driving around the country. And you really, it does hit home when you're outside Dublin, how under-resourced and under-invested parts of the country are. So you, you can't blame people either if they have somebody local to them that's going to invest in their area and is going to really push the area as opposed to like national, you know, TD should be looking at national issues. Um, on page 14, they have a COVID-19 state of the nation. Um, because we, we've touched on this a couple of weeks, they've had a similar one. And the thing that jumped out to me the most was there was a question about how strongly people approve of the government's response to the pandemic. So like between the 9th and the 15th of April, it was uh, for people were 49% strongly agreed with the response. It's gradually gone down every week. This week, it's at 14%. And again, I think there's a couple of factors in that. I think people are just becoming fed up. So even if the, I think even the, the perfect response, people still wouldn't be buying into it as much because people want their freedom. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of anti-COVID, anti-mask, far-right messaging that is really feeding into people's news feeds, particularly on social media. And, it, you know, it's really worrying. I think we're going to touch on that later as well around some of the protests in town yesterday. But, um, you know, again, back to messaging, <clears throat> I think people are confused. People see some contradictory uh, when it comes to workplaces. So people see some contradictory uh, measures being implemented and when the government don't fully implement, say, NEFIC guidelines. I mean, if you've been at those briefings, do you ever find it strange when you, you know, you, you read the NEFIC recommendations or you find out what the NEFIC recommendations and then some of those aren't taken by government? No, I don't find it strange. Like, uh, maybe I'm too far on it now, but I do think with the government and NEFIT, the government obviously takes the public health advice and then, but the government has to implement it. They have to find a way of working it. They obviously have to gauge the mood of the public. They have to consider the public health advice. And as much as like nobody wants to talk about the economy, like they need to be thinking about the economy as well. So at times there are certain things that they ignore. They actually, like the stuff like the green list, which was so important at one point and then we know now that they've ignored a couple of different pieces of advice from uh, from NEFIT on that. So I find it's not that I find, you know, that they ignore advice or they change or you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's not that I find that strange, but I find the types of advice sometimes that they yeah. ignore is strange. Yeah. That's, and I think that that's the stuff that people, that's almost emboldening people when they're losing trust with the government. They're like, well, even though it might look like the, the actual impact that travel has isn't as big as, you know, direct provision or me factories or these things. When people see one area being 
heavily addressed and another area not really being taken into consideration. I think that really frustrates people. Glenn, you wanted in on this. Just to say, I mean, it's in the Sindo and the Sunday Times today about this other tightrope between public health and the health of the economy. And the Sunday Times editorial saying we need to speed up because we've got three crises on the go, mentioning Brexit as well. Um, but we still seem to be stuck in this rut of hitting public health versus, you know, the economy. And ultimately, like if loads of people get really sick or can't work, that's really bad for the economy as well. Like public health and economy are, are so intertwined. So just from the get-go, I've always found this kind of pitting the health, the health of the nation versus the economy just like a, a totally false dichotomy, you know? And yeah, just on that, the Irish Mail on Sunday had a, um, a two-page spread today talking about how kind of disenchanted and fed up Neffet and the civil servants are. Um, I actually felt so bad for them when I was reading um, the piece. I think it was John Lee that wrote it. And they were saying, you know, at times it gets so, so disenchanting when they're doing all this work and there's like obviously real concerns around public health and then they're they have to they, I don't know if they have to but they're now briefing Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin in separate briefings they don't get them together and I feel at times you know the public health like the NEFIT uh, are kind of used as kind of something to flog do you know what I mean like it's not our fault it's NEFIT it's the NEFIT advice and uh you know every other day me, uh, Michael O'Leary from Ryanair's <laughs> slagging them off on Twitter and these are people who are public health experts in yeah. a pandemic so I just think the government also needs to go away to you know building trust with NEFA and the public health experts as well because they're losing them too I mean they keep talking about oh they're losing the public if your public health experts feel disenchanted doing their jobs during a pandemic that's also something you should really worry about as a government yeah and I know actually public health experts have been talking about how they don't feel like um, recruitment within public health has been enough of a priority. And they really feel like since the initial, you know, we're all in this together and the initial kind of praise in the public health, that that's kind of died off. And now the focus has gone elsewhere and they're worried about, you know, this is, we're in it for the long haul. This isn't something that's going to go away in the next couple of months. So, um, do you know what, actually, just talking about that, I think it actually is a good point to, to see again to what happened yesterday in town, though, in the marches and the kind of rise of the far right, because, I, we've been talking about this for a while and I know it's been something that a lot of us have been really conscious of in our organising, our journalism or that, but I, I sensed on Twitter particularly there was a real shock at what happened yesterday. There was a lot of people who really didn't realise that this was so present and that this was, you know, kind of coming down the door and the, you know, the organising had taken such a hold. I think people realised that on Facebook everybody was seeing people they love and respect starting to share things that, you know, are anti-mask, anti-COVID, you know, conspiracy theories and that. But I think that particularly the violence yesterday, like Izzy Kamikaze, a really well-known activist, she's been active. She was, you know, she um, organised the very first Pride March in Dublin. She has been, you know, active across every social justice issue you can imagine, you know, in the past couple of decades. And she was injured really badly yesterday. There were some really awful pictures of her covered in blood. And um, the videos were just really frightening to see this happening on the, on the streets of Dublin. I mean, we've seen it coming, but what do you think about the, how do you think the, the, the maybe mixed messaging in coming from the government in whether it's a comms issue, whether it's actually just people are fed up, or do you think that the, the far right are doing such a good job in, in making people think this is about public health and then sucking them into these kind of, you know, whether it's anti-migrant um, and, 
anti-migrant, anti-government, you know, message. This is what people think it is. But my biggest issue is that I'm seeing a lot of working class people who should be looking to politicians on the left and looking to organisers on the left are getting sucked in by activists they think are anti-government. When in reality, these people don't stand for workers' rights. They don't stand for left policies. They don't stand for public housing or, you know, any of the things that we should be organising around. Yeah, just on that, like, I think, as we all know, and we've seen, you know, over the years, People who get sucked into the far right groups tend to be at a vulnerable point in their life um, or vulnerable to being sucked into those kinds of groups. And I think we're in a pandemic. Everyone feels vulnerable. People yeah. have lost their jobs. Everyone's scared. You might have had family die. And like, as, as it's already been discussed, but you know, COVID denial and like this anti-mask, it comes from a sense of being frightened. Like they don't want to accept that this is actually happening and it's a, it's a coping mechanism. They didn't say, no, 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 this is all, this isn't real. It's a government conspiracy. And like, I'm sure other people are the same, but I even have family members who are sharing totally insane yeah. Facebook posts. Like I'm a journalist and, you know, I've spent my life as a journalist and someone in my family shared a Facebook post last week or the week before that said the media is the virus. And I, I, I honest to God, like was nearly in tears. This is someone I obviously really love and care about. And I was like, if this person who knows a journalist is sharing and knows that she has me on Facebook is sharing this kind of stuff. But again, this person is vulnerable to this kind of stuff, you know, whatever else is going on in their life. And I think there's a tightrope to be walked with in journalism and I don't know how well we're doing it because there is an unsaid um, feeling among Irish journalists that we're not going to give the far right any oxygen because it just promotes their message. But what we saw in the streets yesterday is there's a battle here and we're not in it. You know, there was thousands, I was, I was shocked to see how many people were at that anti-mask protest and then the violence and obviously you talked about what happened to as a, like, it really, really shocked people because I don't think people realise how many deniers and far-right agitators there are. And I think there's definitely something to be said for covering this, but I do understand why the media are so, like, reluctant to give it oxygen because, as we all know, Channel 4 did a, sec uh, a section on a far-right agitator in Ireland and they gain 10,000 Twitter followers out of it. So, yeah. you know, what is the right answer? I just, like, I don't know what you think about it, but I do think something has to give here. And I really think after what happened yesterday in Dublin, there should have been some kind of statement from either, you would hope, the government, but at the very least, a Dublin TD. Yeah, I see an honor brand actually, you know, put out a really good tweet, completely denouncing it and tagging some of the groups that have been vocal on the issue um, and asking them to denounce what happened. I'm going to go to Glenn now in a second. I do want to say, I think, I know we feel like you you and your family have had experience of being involved in a campaign that mm -hmm. has, uh, you know, there's been suggestion of, say, a state cover-up. My family have too with the Stardust. And I think a lot of working class people, because of the experience we've had, um, just in general of being whether they're being barriers whether it's feeling like there's a form of collusion and whether that collusion is like very specific in terms of like the stardust or like you know bloody sunday or whether it's um being left out of being cut out of employment or being cut out of education or those kind of things i think working class people are a little bit more likely to it's not as as, as much of a leap to conspiracy you know so I think that's why yeah. people are, are, are targeted so deeply and the messaging is, is really cleverly 
target in a way that is sucking working class people in and that's my biggest worry and that's why i think you know we there is some organizing going on and we really need to make sure it's cohesive to um to 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 it is a battle, like you said, and I, I, I actually agree with you. I think it's a really difficult one on behalf of journalists because you don't want to give oxygen, but I do think it's past that tipping point now. Glenn, yeah. do you want in on that? And hopefully I'm going to see if we have Kieran back next. I suppose just, in, on, you know, like we're not operating in a bubble here. Like these things are happening right across the globe. Um, you know, Paris spread in Canada yesterday, uh, COVID denial, uh, big turnouts at these things. Um, I think we've, we've, we've unfortunately been, you know, we're starting to be infiltrated uh, by all that, that sort of QAnon kind of shite that's made its way across the world. I mean, it was fascinating during the week to even read in the Financial Times that they're basically calling QAnon America's Al-Qaeda. Um, and I mean, considering how on the fringes QAnon would have been a few years ago, uh, now that it's just like, that's, it's, it's a mad time that we're in. And I mean, obviously, I suppose the difficulty that you have with conspiracy, as you say, Claire, you know, working class people have been, you know, victim of, of state cover-ups. So, with these conspiracies, there are often half-truths. Like, I mean, I don't personally feel, in my own opinion, that the government is, is doing everything it can to look out for public health at the moment. So it's a very easy half-truth you can turn and turn into something else, you know? Um, so I suppose it falls back on all, all of us on, on the left and, you know, unions and, and, and community groups to try and push some of this stuff back. Now, I don't have all the answers, but I think hopefully yesterday will, will have shaken people to sort of say, well, something's going to have to be done here. And, you know, we can't fall back into this space of, of media gatekeepers, both sides and both sides in the problem and sort of saying, oh yeah, well, listen, here are the far right doing all these things, but I'm sure there are people on the opposite side who are just as bad. And that's, that sort of seems to always be the point at which we arrive back at, you know, and let's, let's not forget that, you know, well, I don't agree with this, you know, the media is the virus and, and I sympathize with, you know, the, the plight of journalism over the last number of years. But let's not forget that there are there are broadcasters in prominent positions in this country who helped mainstream some of this far-right stuff over the last number of years and gave these people a platform. And those people are in the Sunday papers today, you know, still talking about, about society. And there has to be some sort of recognition that will actually, you guys help the door open for these people and, 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 have, and have moved the ground from underneath all of us. Yeah, I think that one of the problems is, is that the journalists really trying to, do the right thing and have integrity won't go there the people in the opinion columns that don't so much have that are willing to to kind of platform the far right so it's yeah i it's it, i think it's a really tough one um when in journalism at the minute to the leaving cert if that's okay it i've seen a couple of stories in it and some that kind of really tugged at the heartstrings and some that i found quite enraging um so like in the sunday independent on page two um it was a young man, Cahill Mitchell from Trim, was talking about, you know, the kind of disparity in his results. He, and he had two uh, two subjects, for example. One was his business mock where he got 96%. Um, his, yeah, 96% of his mocks and had never got, say, lower than a H2. And then he got a H3 in his in his actual results. Agricultural science, he got 100% all year. And then he got, like, you know, a H2, which is, you know, a couple of grades less. So he missed out on going to Trinity, which was his dream. And this seems to be, we're seeing loads of these stories, some a lot more extreme than that. Um, some a lot more extreme than that across the board. But what actually enraged me was seeing Kira Kelly in the back of the Times talking about how middle-class students had been, um, had been discriminated against and how in an effort to not discriminate against DESH schools, we had actually discriminated against working-class students. And I just thought, it was one of the most, you know, back of his takes that could have been in the paper this morning because we've seen Kira and Kira, I would add, is one of these people that we've seen platform and some of the people um, that actually were organising the protests yesterday. But the, the opinion in the back of the paper is that 
you know, we shouldn't basically try to address inequality because it'll have negative impact on somebody else is one of the worst takes that we've had around talks on inequality over the past couple of decades. It's the idea that there's only so much to go around and for somebody else to be given a step up or equity, you know, that it's going to, we all have to sacrifice. And it's why people dig down and some people have that fear around equality that's going to take something away from them. Um, does anybody want to jump in on that? Um, while I see if Carol is diving back in. Eva? Um, yeah, just on that, I actually find, obviously, um, I work in Leinster House, but I'm not friends. I don't have, none of my friends are journalists or anything, so um, I kind of get both sides of it. And I actually find that public opinion and even in the media and around the government, everyone actually thought that the government had done, this was a, a rare one for, for the government, yeah. like, the people I spoke to said that they felt that Norma Foley had done the right thing you know there was major major fears that schools um for lower social economic areas were going to be you know discriminated against we saw it in the north of Ireland we saw it in Scotland we saw it in England there was a real fear that we were going to do the same thing here and yeah. you know I think Aon O'Reardon and Donegal O'Leary were out in front from the very start saying you know um we can't we can't have this you need to you need to publish the algorithm so we can see what's happening and yeah there is always going to be this is one of those things it's a totally unwinnable situation because there are always going to be people who are going to lose out when it comes to things like this like predicted grades and you know university spaces and stuff we're in a pandemic it's an absolutely unprecedented situation and the vast vast majority of people maybe they're not absolutely delighted but it was the best they could have hoped for in the in the current situation we're in but um, yeah, I find it's, it, it's, it's a weird one because it's, it's so rare now that people will come out and say, oh, it's the, the middle class has been targeted or like private school children have been targeted. Like, Jesus, obviously, feel really sorry for those kids and stuff. But there is a lot more to be said about for how many years has children who went to non-fee paying schools lost out on places for a myriad of reasons, including yeah. their grades. Yeah, there was one school actually in the papers yesterday, I think it was Ballyfermot that was singled out and five, I think five of the kids in the class had got into Trinity and it, like there was a huge proportion of kids that had like much higher than the ordinary average that were going to university and it was like imagine the knock-on effect that that's going to have on the school on the, on the children coming up behind them and kids starting in first year now. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I just found the kind of the juxtaposition of the, the two stories um, that kind of opinion about middle class students being discriminated against and there was actually was there was half pages on students who felt like they had missed out on their dream course um compared to the one story i read yesterday about the, the five students who had got in and how proud they were and you know and that kind of thing uh, sorry i just kieran have we got you there um okay glenn do you want to jump in uh not too much to say it's not not a particular area of expertise but i'd be a, a cao abolitionist i suppose in the sense that i think COVID has shone light on you know problems that were creaking in health and housing and now obviously education as well and there are very good arguments for you know a different approach to dealing with getting you know college places I think maybe even before the, the coronavirus came in so uh, I mean I think I saw a few people suggested at the start of this why, why not just give everybody their first option uh, because you have such a, re you have a relatively high dropout rate after the first few weeks anyway that you would probably have people, fi people filtering out of courses that they didn't particularly want to do in the first place um, and I think that, I suppose, we, we've always had, you know, doctors and lawyers sending their kids to private school to become doctors and lawyers. So um, it'd be nice to think that maybe we could look at a root and branch of, of second and third level education, maybe as a result of some of these things, but probably not. Maybe that's been a bit too optimistic. 
I don't think so. I think everything that's happened through COVID is an opportunity to to look at how we we organise society in general. I mean, at the start, there was a lot of talk about never going back, about how it, it shone a light on the the disadvantage and the inequality and across all sectors, you know, and who what kind of jobs it actually took to to keep you know to keep society open in the in the worst of times. So I don't think it's you know I don't think it is too much of a jump to think well now this is an opportunity to completely reevaluate how we how we exam or you know how we process our examinations um <laughs> Kieran, are you there i believe i am Claire. i hope so can you hear We're, me I, we can hear you perfectly Kieran. okay so Kieran, i'm gonna go to you um we lost you there a while ago when you were talking about the front page but um are there any stories that are particularly big up the north at the minute that you want to bring in yeah, well, I was reading, um, and it's interesting, it sort of follows on from what you were just talking about, the education setup and the fragility of what we had pre-COVID-19 and how that was impacted on. And there's, a, on page 26 of the Sunday Independent, there's a sort of a debate where two journalists, Ona Mali and um, Connor Skeen, I think, are going toe-to-toe about what way we should be um, looking at cities in terms of transport. It's almost like the motor vehicle versus the cycle. And during the week there, in one of my sort of political anorak moments, I started, you know, scarring some of the left-wing um, websites for my sins. And I noticed one, socialdemocracy.org, where it effectively um, raised the issue of um, try back Tribeca or Becca, I don't know what way it's pronounced, Belfast, um, and the ongoing issues and problems around that. And it was interesting, even yesterday, one of our sister podcasts, um, Trademark Belfast, did a full 50 minutes in around this particular problem. But effectively what it is, it's about a, a major private company that's going to inject 500 million or so into a certain part of Belfast which they are going to sort of rebuild, redesign, and it's all going to be metal and glass fronted structures and lovely little hipster coffee shops and restaurants and office blocks and retail, despite the fact that many retail um, units in Belfast lie empty and boarded up, we're going to have more of that. And what's very disturbing for me is that there's certain parts of this part of Belfast that they're going to develop, um, which is the Cathedral Quarter. And this has serious historic value in terms of, you know, the trade union movement even would be sort of, that's where we would meet for our May Day marches, the Raiders Square. There's even a sort of a lovely statuette to this Spanish Civil War, the international brigades in the Spanish Civil War. And there would be, uh, you know, sort of working class communities in and around the fringes of that particular quarter. and. If you look at this, these plans, and they have encountered a certain amount of opposition, but there is a stipulation that local development plans have to have 20% social housing. In this project, there's none, and nobody has asked any questions. Now, if that wasn't disturbing enough, um, you have to ask yourself, what happens when these projects take place? This company is not going to put 500 million in and then walk away and say, there's a lovely little present for you. They're clearly, what they're doing is they're going to privatize, gentrify um, this particular area, which is going to be um, sort of an unwelcome space for what would be the real Belfast communities um, from the more working class um, 
sort of areas of Belfast who would have often occupied this particular space. And um, if you look at even in the city council, there is little or no political opposition to it. And what I find um, very difficult and irreconcilable is the likes of Sinn Féin have signed up to this, even though if you look at Sinn Féin's policy position in the South, and I have read Ono Breen's excellent book about housing, and I actually remember being in Lusty Beg where Ono Breen addressed at one of our activist schools, and I thought he was excellent in, in terms of the information and everything he would provide. But, you know, Sinn Féin would be pushing for that sort of social housing element in any local development plan. But up here, there's an absence of that. And that would give me serious concern. You know, um, this is an opportunity, but it's one that must be seized in such a way that it actually seeks to defend and look after those communities um, that maybe badly need some element of regeneration and redevelopment, but provides them with a voice in that area um, rather than just leaving it open to big business. Yeah, I haven't seen too much of that covered down here. I've seen Trademark talk about it. Um, I am surprised about the twenty, like the twenty percent social housing. Is, is is that in the form of an exemption, or is that something that maybe could be challenged? I know when it happens down here, basically what happens is a private developer can come in and they can make a deal to provide that social housing elsewhere. And usually, what happens is is they have a prime piece of location like along the docks. Um, they put all the really expensive apartments in there, 100% private, and then they'll put 20% in a much more kind of disadvantaged area um, that are, you know, essentially worth less to them. Is, is that the kind of thing that's happening up with Tribeca or, or do you know what the reasoning is behind it? Well, at this moment in time, I'm not aware of the reason. It's sort of my interest has only become apparent in the last number of days, as I said, and it's one that I would like to explore. But it is very clear that, you know, uh, these type of projects put social housing very much on the back burner and it's, they, they leave it open to big business and private industry and, and enter uh, interest. And social housing really isn't of that prominent um, a part in their project plans. And, you know, like it has been declared that there's 20% of what's supposed to be in any local development plan for social housing. It's not uh, material and manifest in this particular project. So if that's to be challenged, well and good. But at the same time, it would give me cause for concern that it even had to be challenged. Oh, yeah, totally. No, I'm with you on that. I mean, we've had similar situations with um, public housing been handed over to developers. We had it with Odevany. We're going to have it coming up soon now with the Oscar trailer land. Um, so it's, it's, it's something that I think is a, is a massive issue that activists on the left and particularly politicians need to be a little bit more active around. Glenn, you wanted to know that there? No, no, not an area of expertise of mine, but I suppose uh, having read Owen O'Brien's book as well, maybe yeah. maybe he should send a few copies of it up to, to his colleagues up across the border. Okay. Um, Karen, I'm going to come back to you because we, because we didn't have you for a while. Uh, any other stories that were jumping out to you there? I mean, I think the Brexit, you know, and the... The withdrawal agreement has been one of the biggest stories of the week. Um, it was only th there was a double thread in the Sindo and there was a double thread in the in the I uh, Irish Times as well on it. Um, didn't focus the Sindo didn't focus usually on the withdrawal agreement though. Now I know it was covered a lot during the week, so it was more of a you know this is the this is the worst of Brexit we've seen so far. How are we still even talking about Brexit? I can't imagine being a journalist, Eva. I mean. Like being stuck, thrilling, Claire. Absolutely <laughs> thrilling. Um, but I mean, about yourself, I suppose, Aoife, this is really relevant to you too. I, you know, coming from Derry and like, I like the thing is for me, it's so personal because I'm from the border, like, I'm yeah. Derry City. But I mean, my dad works in Donegal, he runs a pub in Donegal, and so he crosses the border 
five, six times a day. So yeah, it is, it's really personal. And I do think even when, you know, they said the MP in Westminster said, yeah, it, it does break international law. And I think the whole of the North, the majority of the people in the North of Ireland just rolled their eyes because this is, there's such a basic lack of trust anyway with in Northern Ireland, with Stormont and Westminster, there is a sincere lack of trust between the public and politicians. There has been for years in the North. And this is just another, you know, factor for people to not believe in the system. And like, do you know what else is an international agreement? The Good Friday Agreement. This really, really scares people. Like, the, the fact that they would just roll back. And it puts people in the North and even in Dublin in a position where we're looking to America. We need to get big players to come and say, you cannot do this because we don't even feel like our opposition to it is enough. Brussels opposing it isn't enough because they have no time or seem to have no respect for Brussels either. So having people like Nancy Pelosi and you know different world leaders to come and say, listen, we're not going to be doing any trade deals with you if you're going to roll back on stuff like this. But I think it just shows you how vulnerable people in the North are. And like we've had Coveney. Uh, and Helen McEntee out this morning saying, you know, this just isn't going to fly. But there's serious concern. If they go back to World Trade uh, Organization guidelines and they crash out, not even just for people in the north, rural Ireland and the agri-food sector is going to be completely decimated. Like, they can't afford those tariffs. So I really feel like at the minute we're, like, sitting ducks in the way that we're all just sitting waiting to see what London are actually going to do. Like, is there enough pressure that we can put on them? And, like, not to get too much into personalities, but Boris does not seem to care. He's like, he had a Zoom meeting with all his Conservative MPs the other day, and obviously they're really concerned about this. We've had resignations, we've had a lot of like public con- condemnation from his own government, and he called them all miserable. So it doesn't seem that he really cares. And I, I, like, I think this next week, we keep saying, you know, this next week is crucial in COVID. This next week is really crucial in Brexit because Boris has already said that the t- like his time frame is October 15th. We're already in the middle of September. So it's, it's, it's really concerning. Yeah, it is very frightening. It feels really from the outside as well as someone who's not, you know, directly impacted that, you know, people up north have just been used as pawns, real pawns with absolutely no consideration for people's lives or the fear that this might bring. Kieran, um, your, you know, you this affects you personally, affects you work-wise, this is an employee's issue, it's a, it's a, it's a safety, it's a, you know, um, there's a real issue on you mm. work around anti-sectarianism with trademark. Can you give us a couple of those different perspectives on how this is going to impact people? Well, well, well. In the first instance, um, I wouldn't be overly surprised at the fact that this has happened. You know, the Brits have form, uh, and this type of thing. If you look at the Treaty of Windsor, the Treaty of Malifaux, the Treaty of Limerick, they do have bloody form. And if you were to look at um, this guy Boris Johnson and the man that's really, you know, operating the puppet strings here is Dominic Cummins. Um, they just do not care. Um, and to be honest with you, they're now in an electoral position where they don't even have to care. And if you look at the North situation, the vast majority of people in the North voted to stay in the European Union. Um, the politicians that um, would, well, the DUP, which would have a sizable um, sort of demographic voting base within the North, they have just chosen to ignore that. and. 
you know, if you look at Alex Kane in this week's Irish Independent, Alex Kane comes from a very strong unionist background, would have written a lot of speeches and everything for many of the unionist politicians. And he effectively said that, you know, the unionists need to get ways on this, that Boris Johnson doesn't owe them any allegiance and only thinks about himself and will continue to do that. Um, as, like, I don't understand why he needs to do that. He broke... He broke with the, the unionist position um, when the, the, the withdrawal agreement was more or less designed, written, and barely had the ink gone dry, then all of a sudden he takes second thoughts. And nobody understands why this is the case, because he no longer needs the DUP in terms of an electoral advantage. And for me, it must be some sort of ego trip that he's gone on. But it could backfire in a way in that it's creating internal problems within the... Um, the, the Tory party itself. But Eve is quite correct. There is a potential damage to the Good Friday Agreement on this. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm up front. I believe um, that Ireland should be leaving the European Union and should be having that debate um, as we speak. But we are in a situation where the Good Friday Agreement could fall foul and victim to this type of sort of egotistical drive by Boris Johnson. And that would be um, I think the, the worst casualty that could happen. And it remains to be seen if it does. Um, and I think that cause could cause you know, potential problems. But if anybody thought that the Good Friday Agreement resolved the sectarian issue and the troubles issue in the North, they need to you know, you know, think again. It didn't. You only have to sort of scratch the surface in the North and sectarianism is very much alive and well. Um, there's a lot of work to be done in that area, in that field, but certainly when you have these type of political pressures piling in on top of that, it doesn't give them the room, the scope to actually move things on. Can I just come on? I know I rarely talked, but can I just come on on um, that? Yeah, of course. From, from a personal perspective as well, like, and I know it, it comes across as corny when people say it, like, peace is fragile. But I really like cannot head home enough how fragile peace is. I'm from Derry City. There is a, a sizable uh, contingent of dissident republicanism already in Derry. You know, we've seen in the last couple of years after the shooting of Lear McKee, you know, the, the bomb outside Bishop Street Courthouse. These dissident republican groups prey on young, vulnerable, working class men who have very little opportunity. Derry is, has a myriad of problems with poverty and any slight infringement on the Good Friday Agreement will give these dissident republican groups more sway with people in these communities to say, look, they don't care about you. Look what the British government are doing. And it's nothing to do with republicanism and nationalism because it's their own communities that they're, that they're pissing off, you know what I mean? But I just think as well, and um, what Kieran was saying is completely right, Boris doesn't care. He doesn't seem to care. He very, he's given the peace process very little time or energy. And I think that's become incredibly stark in the last week. Yeah, um, it's... You know, I'm, I'm delighted to have the two of you on today but to be able to give on, us that but kind on of perspective. That particular point, yeah. No, go on, but on that particular point, his, history has shown that no British, no Brit, history has shown that no British Prime Minister is occurs about the North, um, and, and it's literally it's a, a, a sort of an unwanted pimple on the UK's backside, and you know they've never and anything they've done has been tokenistic, and they have used. 
um, dare I say, the Protestant community and stirred up sectarian strife um, to ensure, like, it's, it's not a lie to say that they actually entertained the troubles. And if you were to look at British forces collusion in terms of loyalist paramilitaries, and even, dare I say, and how they got involved and ingratiated themselves with maybe nationalists and republicans, um, they purposely set out to put Protestant and Catholic against one another because it was in their interest electorally. And Boris Johnson, as much as he's a buffoon and he's run and controlled by the likes of Dominic Cummins, is only reflecting, probably in a more coarse way, how British prime ministers have successively treated the North. And whilst the Good Friday Agreement is important and it's, we should do everything in our power to protect it, Dominic, or the likes of Dominic Cummins and Boris Johnson would sacrifice that on the altar of their ego. I have no doubt about that, but that doesn't in any shape or form surprise me, given British form and Irish history. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I just want to jump into one of the biggest stories of the week um, and let me know who wants in on this, but um, the situation that happened with the Devon's workers. I mean, I don't have a union, you know, trade union background in the sense that I've, my interaction with trade unions has been as an activist and, you know, trade union support and movements and stuff like that. So the actual um, strikes and the, the inner workings of unions and how these situations come about and the law behind it and what's actually possible. Um, I'm kind of, I'm learning a lot over the past couple of weeks and particularly doing this podcast. But what happened with the Debenhams workers, I mean, it's just devastating to watch people who have given decades to a company have to strike for months on end. Um, while it looks to me that a private company is, you know, transferring assets and, you know, is it, it, just completely legally, it seems, um, throwing them out on the street with, with absolutely nothing. Glenn, do you, you want in on this? Um, just where to start, yeah, uh, because, I mean, obviously, tactical insolvencies, I mean, they, they, sit, they are exactly what they sound like, you know, we've had the issue with Lysanza and Cleary's and Game and Cortex and all these other, you know, endless lists of companies that have pulled this fast one on, on workers and subsequently on, on, on the whole country because it's us as taxpayers was to pick up the tab for it. Um, and it was a bit disappointing, not disappointing, but it was disappointing, but not surprising to hear, I suppose, Ragger on the radio during the week and no guesses for which side he was sort of falling down, saying that, you know, it was technically nothing illegal that Debenhams had done and that. I was like, well, you know, for Jesus' sake, he can't even, he can't even be moved to sort of show any kind of sympathy with, with, with the workers there. But I suppose to come at the Debenhams uh, dispute from a different angle, because there's been plenty of, of, uh, of good said about, you know, the, the workers who've been on the picket line for, for well over 100 days and who, you know, among the best of us during this pandemic and have obviously been a leading light to everybody in the trade union movement in terms of standing up for their rights and what they're doing that. Um, but maybe this was one of the lesser uh, sort of spoken about, um, I suppose, aspects of the dispute is, I suppose, now big believer that trade, union in this, trade unionism in this country has all sorts of gaping wounds and I would be fearful that it's probably, it's possibly on its last legs and that's obviously replicated across the world as well. And there are loads of criticisms to be made of trade unions in terms of, I suppose, not being able to, to balance capital, not being able to recruit young workers. I mean, you name it, you know. Um, but if I was an industrial correspondent and I wanted to have a go at the unions or, or I wanted to create a layer of separation between the workers on the picket line and the unions, I would use headlines like union bosses and 
try to basically make it appear to the workers that, oh, your union isn't really on your side. And I suppose it's just been disappointing that one of the mainstays of the dispute has been that that's been done by some of the entities that are involved uh, in supporting the strike. Now, I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that like a lot of the activists and people supporting the picket lines have been, you know, uh, members of, of, I suppose, the, the Socialist Party and people for profit and that. Um, but ultimately, they're, they're standing on one side saying that they're demanding unions to be more militant. And, you know, I fully think there's a lot of home truths there that we need to engage with. But at the same time, then, I suppose, constantly castigating unions and talking about union bureaucrats and almost doing that, I suppose, that industrial correspondent with an agenda's job for them, uh, you know, to essentially create this layer of separation between the workers on the picket line and, and I suppose, the union that they're very much a part of, I think, is, is quite contradictory. And sometimes it'll make you maybe not take at face value that, I suppose, what, what, what's actually going on here and... I'm, I'm trying to tread carefully because I really don't want to be in any way, you know, sectarian. And we need a reflective space to look at what works and what doesn't work about these disputes. But um, we also need to, I suppose, take a face value. Like if, you know, we're dealing with a tactical insolvency here and we're dealing with a big multinational, you know, ultimately, I think there, there, there are probably only there are only certain things that, that unions can do. There was one line going around that that mandate leaked the, leaked the details of the deal to the media. I mean that was that was propagated by by some elements on the picket line and, and and you know trying to stir the pot. I don't see how or in whose interest it would be for a trade union to leak a deal to the media. It probably came from KPMG, who obviously walked away from any kind of agreement the first opportunity they got. So they're probably never going to honour it anyway. Um, but I just I suppose the way that like sometimes you know people who are calling for more militancy in trade unions and we have to get involved and we have to save the unions will then set up like a own brand version of, of a campaign to almost mimic it and it becomes a little bit like territorial pissing so I'm talking you know explicitly about the fact that we have a devil devil warriors Debenhams campaign and a stand with Debenhams workers campaign and I suppose there, 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 there needs to be a conversation about how we tactically win industrial disputes going forward because I just think that trying to save trade unionism by by painting it as as really problematic is 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 not the way it just puts more barriers in front of actually saving the trade union movement that can become an equalizer for working people. So, sorry, I know I've failed to turn the top off there for a few minutes, but that's kind of my two cents on it. No, not at all. I'll be honest. Like I said, as I'm, my whole kind of political education has only been happening for a couple of years at a time when I've had two young kids. So reading hasn't been big on my list. It's all been through experience, through my own kind of values. And I've been lucky enough with the people I've met. So sometimes I don't have like a historical understanding of some of these things so I was really confused by a lot of what's been happening with the Debenhams in terms of like you said certain aspects of the left seemed the rhetoric seemed to be very anti-union not and I, I believe in being able to criticize the left I believe we need to be able to criticize union, like in a real constructive way I think sometimes there's elements of the left where if you criticize it's like you're either with us or against us and I don't think that's helpful either but yeah, I've been really confused on some of this. Is it, what's actually going on here? Are we trying to make unions better? Or is it is just being divisive? And I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. Kieran, you are you work for Mandy. So can you, in, how, in whatever way you can, can you give us your kind of opinion on this or your take even from your own experience? Well, I'd probably better keep my opinion to myself, but there's no doubt. Look, in, in any industrial dispute, you're always going to have this element of negativity. The unfortunate part of that is it tends to come from those that would say they defend workers and they champion workers' rights and struggles. 
But the phrase, those very same people do not have an understanding how um, trade unions work and similarly wouldn't really have um, an idea about, you know, the, 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 the sort of the employment legislation or the legislation that surrounds the taking of disputes. Um, like one of the calls that came out, has come out of the Debenhams dispute and dare I say and others um, has been for a general strike. The Industrial Relations Act of 1990 prevents that. And let's be quite honest, I don't believe if we were to, able to, if we were to go out and ballot Tesco members, Marks and Spencer's members, and um, in this current environment where we still haven't you know, felt the full impact of the economic um, sort of negative that's going to fall out of this pandemic, they're not going to go on strike in defense of um, Debenham's workers. And the legislation has provided, and let's be honest with you, the government is quite correct. At this moment in time, irrespective of whether this is a tactical um, dissolution of a company or not, the legislation provides that these people are entitled to only the statutory redundancy. Is that correct? No, it's not. We should be having something that protects the collective agreement that they have with the union, giving them more and better than the statutory redundancy. And that's part of this current campaign. Um, which is signed off by all of the shop stewards without any opposition as an off Thursday evening. And there, we're enjoined with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions to push that campaign. We believe a door has been opened at the highest offices of government. We now have to go in and smash that door down. Can we do it? Yes, we can. We did it with the Duns dispute and the banded hours legislation, which I would have to say is probably the only sort of legislation that is in place on the planet of the earth in terms of protecting workers' rights here sort of lower contracts. So it can be done. Um, and when you achieve one success, then you have to build for the next success. The difficulty we have with this is a certain type of left-wing thinking, and they're entitled to their opinions and, their, and what have you, but it's not, has occupied the space of the Debenham strike. Maybe there's an argument as to why and how they occupied that space, but that is something that has to be looked at internally by mandate, which they will do. Um, but you know, to say that the union has deserted these workers is not, it's not the case at all. Absolutely not. Um, and those people that, you know, were in that sort of industrial dispute space and around the pickets and have been feeding this information, which I would regard, regard as misinformation, that the union doesn't care. It's all nonsense and it does nothing. It does nothing to actually keep the spotlight on what has happened to these workers and who has done what. Um, this is now becoming very much a political argument, and it's one that we have to pursue with figure, and it can only be done with absolute unity. Yeah, certainly, like, looking, going back to Leo Radcar's comments this week, I mean, acting like this is an issue that the government can't do anything about, that they can't change legislation, um, it, you know, is a bit ridiculous, and I think that that's, that's definitely where it needs to go. We need to see legislation to prevent this happening again. At the very least, and then hopefully some some um, intervention to help the the Devon well, workers. On that, Claire, now we have put forward in part of this campaign a means and a way to not only have that legislation put enacted um, for future disputes of this type, um, but similarly to have some sort of retrospection um, that would safeguard um, the Devon's collective agreement, and that can be done. And you know, it's all about now the political will. And the problem is when it comes to employ, employment rights, the success of Irish governments, and dare I say, right across 
um, maybe other countries, they tend to drag their feet. Um, there was no problem when the banks were about to go belly up. Overnight, they were able to bring in legislation. There was no problem when the IRA, IRA campaign visited um, the South in the early 70s. They brought in some of the most draconian subversive legislation that was ever in place. And they did it within 24 hours. The problem is when it comes to workers' rights, our governments um, tend to drag their feet. And it's, we now have a responsibility where their mealy um, mouth words have to be actually put into actions. Yeah, I think to do that, I think we need some real left unity. Glenn, you had an article you wanted to bring in just before we finish up. Um, yeah, yeah, I have plenty more to say about, about Devon as well, but I suppose just uh, may, may, maybe for another day. But uh, yeah, there was one other story that I thought that was worth uh, highlighting. So um, there's an opinion piece by Aidan Regan in the Business Post today about uh, if money makes the world go round, then uh, universal benefit income is a no-brainer. Um, so, I mean, I think this is a debate that we're ever going to have a, a broad left tent or some sort of a loose left alliance. Maybe that's probably more achievable than left unity, but that's a conversation that, you know, the left has to have and a debate that it has to have. So I suppose welcome that it's kicked off in tandem, but um, I suppose it's an interesting, I mean, I would sort of view like that as almost a capitulation to sort of capital in the sense that, uh, the piece goes on to say, you know, fueled by the changing nature of the world of work, automation, trends towards economic inequality. Um, but he says that this would improve collective bargaining power of lower paid workers because it would make them more enterprising. Um, so, I mean, essentially, that's just fueling the rat race or equipping people with, I suppose, more wherewithal to fuel the rat race. Um, and I suppose, ultimately, there's plenty of literature already, but I think there's a few issues with universal benefit income. The first being that whenever... The crisis gets worse or inequality increases we just we hear people like presenting it as a really simple solution um whereas i think there's, there's a lot more going behind the works there i mean it and there's a danger that if you have a right-wing neoliberal government in there and they get their hands on ubi then it ultimately becomes a trojan horse for i suppose the, the complete abolition you know, abolition of the welfare state which you know was fought so long and hard for um so, I mean, I would just, I suppose, urge listeners, if you, if you haven't made your mind up about UBI yet, definitely give uh, Aidan Regan's piece uh, a read today. But he's quite dismissive. He says that, you know, he, he disagrees with the leftist critique of UBI, which isn't sustainable in, a, you know, in the market reality of, you know, technological change. But we also need to talk about the owners of this technological train change, who is driving it, who owns the robot that wants your job. And, you know, we need to talk about how we can... I suppose balance that out with you know worker-led and and democrat and, and democracy-led initiatives and ultimately you know trade union membership is 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 a core part of that you know but I I would just be wary of us going down this UBI route if you know as as a, as a common sense policy because I think it would possibly create an even bigger neoliberal uh, landscape than we have at the moment but I think we have to have the debate and I know Stefan uh, who's not on the podcast today has talked about a jobs guarantee and that will get my vote as well. Yeah, I think that I, I mean, when I, a couple of years ago, was kind of studying social science and UBI came up, it sounded like a brilliant idea, you know, and you forced chair it, um, you know, the way Guy Stanley and stuff like that was writing around it. And I had never heard of the idea of UBS, Universal Basic um, Services, you know. So I think that anytime you have a, a conversation, or even now around UBI without UBS, you, I feel like there is an agenda. I think um, it took me a while, and again, just having some sound heads around me, 
put me, sending me in the direction of UBS to understand the damage that universal basic income could actually do to the people that need welfare the most. Uh, but I, I agree when you said Trojan horse, I think because it can sound, it can be made to sound really appealing. I think the Green Party are pushing it quite um, hard now. Like I said, it was something that I thought was a great idea, you know, not too long ago. So it would be a worry that a lot of people would kind of jump on it thinking it was the next big thing and when it could actually have a much more negative impact. Anybody else want to know that? Yeah, I just wanted to say I read that today and I actually find it really interesting. I mean, finance and that kind of stuff like isn't really my speciality. So I'm still learning as well when it comes to things like UBA. And I know it, it's often in the Green Party's manifesto. They have been pushing it for years. It's just not something I can ever see happening in Ireland. I don't know. I could be completely wrong. I just don't believe that the Irish public would stomach it. I think it would create a lot of division in the public. I think it's it's just one of those things that seems like such a far away kind of thing um, for Irish people. They would, it would, at the very minimum, spur arguments about, you know, this money for nothing kind of um, argument that we hear all the time. And then also on the left, we would have, why are we already giving, why are we giving rich people you know, a thousand euro a month, I think is what Aidan argued for in, in the, hypothetically, in the Sunday Business Post. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's it's a nice idea. There's a myriad of problems, but I just don't even think it's something that Ireland would ever entertain. So um, I think definitely there's a conversation to be had, but the only people who want to have it is the Green Party. <laughs> what do you think, Kieran? I think Aoife summed it up in that last line. Um, <laughs> I would agree with Len that the debate has to be had. Um, there are arguments for and against it. And certainly if you'd ever listen to Stefan on his, his podcast, um, he would very much persuade you against it. But look, that question um, needs to be asked. If it's you have one of the parties that are pushing it the most, they're actually in government. You know, what's happening? Um, and I think we need to have that debate at least. And we'll see where it gets to. I think if we were to go back to the, you know, what the powers of the Green Party within this government though we could have a whole other podcast on it and um, I think considering Aoife breaks most of those stories every week she'd be the best person <laughs> to have that with so hopefully you come back and have that conversation with us next time I just wanted to touch on one quickly before we end because it, I thought it's a really important piece um, I won't go into too much detail though but it was page six of the uh, the Sindo and it was about the increase in antidepressant use in children and I, listen, it was a big article but for me the biggest the most important point in it is that you, a huge amount of children that um that go to their doctor and end up being put on antidepressants are waiting for an appointment with, you know, a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or you know, a psychologist. And um I'm in no way saying that we shouldn't be using antidepressants, you know, kids around like that. I'm not a doctor and that's not the argument I'm making. But I do think that kids should have immediate access to to a more holistic kind of care. They need to be seeing psychiatrists, they need to be seeing psychologists to understand what the actual issue is. Like I have ADHD, that's only kind of recently enough diagnosed. So I've been, very, you know, reading a lot around neurodivergences and stuff like that. And the amount of kids I know that are misdiagnosed because there's not enough of an understanding of these things would be a big worry of mine. So when I look at stories like that and it comes back to, again, this is a public service, it's massively underfunded. We have areas of the country, I think it was Wexford, that the only psychiatrist in the whole region, child psychiatrist, was coming up to retire and they referenced they wouldn't be able to replace him for a couple of years. So the waiting list was going to just go absolutely through the roof. That was about a year and a half ago. Aoife, do you yeah. Want to yeah, yeah, I did that story actually at the okay. time. So, 
Um, I interviewed Raymond Shannon, who is a campaigner. His son um, has mental health problems. And at one point they had his 13-year-old son in the adult ward in St. John of God. And he was traveling from Wexford up to Dublin to see him every every day or every other day. And, you know, Raymond's a single parent as well. So his story really stuck with me um, at the time. And, but it's it's not just Wexford. You know, we know that there are massive issues with CAMS beds. So, you know, mental health beds for children. And I think what you said is right. You know, we're not advocating for not giving, like no one wants to see a child in pain. So, you know, if, a, if an antidepressant is, you know, a quick fix because there are these huge waiting lists for psychologists you know doctors are the same as us they don't want to see the child in pain so obviously they're going to say right well we can give you antidepressants in the interim but of course I think everyone would be concerned at the the amount of children on them and also how do we get these children off them you know what I mean no one wants to put a child on antidepressants and then that's you for the rest of your life like I know the toll it takes on people one of my friends I think she's been on antidepressants since she was about nine or ten and you know it's it's, it's a huge impact on her life and you know she she manages it and she's happy and content but I think you know the major thing we should be investing in now especially in COVID and we've seen what the pandemic has done to people's mental health and anxiety and we're going to see more job losses as we had under a recession so I think and also, this kind of ties into what the Sunday Business Post um, have today. You know, Fianna Fáil are basically banking on this 600 million euro winter health package, you know, to get them up in the polls. Michael McGrath has been out in front talking about it already. So I really believe if they think that they can turn around their polling numbers on health, then mental health would be a complete vote winner you know people yeah. are so so concerned about mental health now and I think it would be it's one of those things like yeah it might cost a lot and at the time but down the line you're going to save money if you're looking after people's mental health I think that that is one of the biggest issues we have in government is that when parties get into government they see it as a four-year cycle there's no long-term thinking I mean Slanty Care was one of the few um proposals that ever had a long-term strategy and cross-party support and look how that went and you know it's still not being implemented it's still not being funded and like to be honest you know I think a lot of parties on the left would agree that it didn't even go far enough so to not even not be able to get Slantra Care that was agreed cross-party and that you know funding was commitment committed for shows that when a party gets into government it's thinking about the next election and it's thinking about the poll numbers like you said so I think that we see it in house and we see the research shows that kids gone into to hubs and being institutionalized are going to have massive issues down the road and they're going to be even if you don't care you know on a human level they're going to have financial implications for the state but people in government are thinking well i might i might not be in government then we might not be the party managing that so we leave that up to somebody else and yeah i think that's one of the reasons why mental health is ignored so much um unfortunately but yeah glenn do you want to in there just before we finish just i mean it'd be interesting to see if i suppose how tenable this individualization of mental health is, is going to be because I mean, I back in my days as a welfare officer in, in the students' union in DOT, and we were running these please talk campaigns and handing out tea bags and, you know, trying to, I suppose, individualize our, because ultimately that's what our mental health advice is, is, you know, here are some coping mechanisms to get you to be a productive member of society all over again. But, you know, coming into a recession and people's material conditions are going to be, you know, negatively impacted all over again. You know, wheeling Brezzy out and telling people to take long walks on the beach just isn't going to cut it, you know, so... 
I mean, there's going to have to, some of that money is going to have to be around community care and actually taking some of that work off charities, which, I mean, let's, let's be perfectly honest with you. Like, I mean, sometimes the charities just don't want to deal with the severe cases either, you know? Yeah, it's a tough one. And I think as well, um, like, again, I know from myself that if you are an adult with ADHD, you have, there is nobody in the country in the, in the HSE that you can go to, to be assessed. Uh, so you have to go privately and it's expensive to go private. It's, you know, it's really expensive. But also if you have, you know, particularly if your symptoms of ADHD are quite extreme, huge amount of people get misdiagnosed with bipolar, you know, and could then be put on medication for bipolar or, or, or like other, um, can get other diagnoses as well. But the implications of not having a service there, like you said, kids that can't access a psychologist are then being put on magic medication at a time when their brains are forming. You know, it's, it's different to an adult. You know, actually, the, it's so much more important that kids have access to somebody immediately when they're, you know, I've heard of kids that are su actively suicidal. I've known children in homeless accommodation who are suicidal and can't get access to somebody immediately. And it's just, again, it's back to the whole idea of, you know, if we're not looking after the most vulnerable people when they're, in their most vulnerable moments, what does that say about us as a society? Okay, so Mayor, I'm gonna leave it there. That was brilliant. Thanks so much, everybody. I want to say thank you today to Glenn Fitzpatrick, Eva Grace Moore, and Kieran Campbell. Um, this was the week at work. Tune in to us next Sunday, um, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>